The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium melodic gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, it's a tandem interview. Ellie and I talked to Lizette Alvarez, the storyteller and witch behind Kalila Stormfire's Economical Magic Services. We're talking about Lizette's vocation, their experiences in witch grad school, and embracing your own shadow. It's a powerful conversation with a fine storyteller. Coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Last week, we played episode three of Kalila Stormfire's Economical Magic Services, a story about a witch whose consulting business is threatened by a mean-spirited saboteur. This week, we're talking to Lizette Alvarez, that show's creator. Now, this is going to be a very spoiler-heavy interview, so if you haven't listened to the entire first season of Kalila, prepare to learn some things about the character out of sequence. It won't really impede your enjoyment of the show or anything, it's just a, just a heads up. Also, Ellie joined me for this interview, which is an absolute pleasure. Elena is a fabulous interviewer, and I respect her skills immensely, which is why I was only too happy to tag-team with her on Lizette, who is a most formidable interview subject. Join us as we talk about Lizette's journey to discovering their vocation as a storyteller, the magical framework known as elemental psychology, and what it means to create a work of fantasy fiction when you are, yourself, a witch. Give it a listen. Lizette, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Why, thank you, David. I'm so excited to be here. We're super excited to have you on. Yeah. So, Lizette, to start off, tell us how you came to join Reflections Mystery School and Uncovered Storytelling as your vocation. Ah, so, okay, I came to Washington, D.C. right after New Year's, January 2013. I've primarily been a um, solitary practitioner. Uh, my grandmother, and um, um, I've, I've said in other venues, my grandmother is a witch, uh, a Cuban grandmother on my father's side. Um, and my grandfather is a feng shui master and an astrologist. So I have a lot of background, but nothing, fo- nothing no formal training. I had been part of a lot of different uh, pagan groups over the years are, are really like just joining in in pagan events. Um, I've been to Florida Pagan Gathering in, in Florida. Um, I participated with other kind of local events when I was going to school in Tallahassee, Florida at Florida State University. But other than that, I kind of like kept my practices to myself. I kind of kept going for a while since I was 16, again, mostly by myself. So Kind of the the alignment with me going to grad school also aligned with me wanting a little bit more of a um, solid foundation and community with my spirituality. So once 
I went, got accepted to George Washington University, um, and I was starting school in the fall, coincided with Pagan Pride Day that usually falls in September. Um, across, you know, many, many towns and cities. Um, they essentially provided, like, there was entertainment, there was music, there were teachers. It was actually at DuPont Circle. And I, uh, you know, I, you know, kind of uh, figuring out, like, who's who and that, that initial, like, oh, these are various groups, uh, pagan groups around D.C. and the D.C. metro area. Um, so I went up to one. And uh, I noticed that they were the convening group um, for Pagan Pride Day. They were called Connect DC. They had a booth and a tent. Um, and I went up and introduced myself. And I actually ended up first talking with Katrina Messenger, who is now my high priestess. So she talked to me a little bit about um, the event, uh, you know, of, of what what the the kind of plan was for the day. And then she started talking. I asked her a little bit about um, the various pagan groups and the pagan group she was a part of. And um, she mentioned Reflections Mystery School, which um, one of her current, her actual, uh, a new student for that year, um, Vanessa, who actually turned out to be my kind of mentor. Um, she's only a couple years older than me, but she's, she's essentially my first ever big sister, because I'm the oldest in my family. Um, uh, but she came over and started talking and kind of joking around of like, yeah, it's basically like which graduate school. And I'm like, this sounds great. Where can I sign up? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, that was, that was my experience. And my initial experience of Katrina was I was intimidated. She was a, or she is a uh, black woman for, she self-described former Marxist and radical um, uh, a recovering Marxist, I think she also puts it. Um, she also uh, is a retired electrical engineer. Wow. Yeah. An incredibly intelligent woman. Um, very, very perceptive. And I was very much interested in learning from her and also um, kind of getting to also know the other students because they were also uh, seemingly very, very connected with each other. So, so I, w- I want to focus in on discovering the storytelling vocation through reflections. Like as much as you're, I mean, I I get that it's a mystery school and that a lot of what goes on there, maybe we can gloss that. Cause I mean, I, I heard you describe it on spirits, but for our listeners, if you could say what, what that means. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty open in terms of like you know, what we learn um, or the, the subjects we talk about. Actually, the process of Reflections Mystery School is uh, what's called polishing the jewel. It's really kind of focusing in on and using different techniques and different um, methodologies and different systems to really get at the core of who you are as a person and what you're meant to do in the world, um, what your strengths are. So it is very simple. Essentially, we uh, our, our school, we align with the Myers-Briggs test. So I am an INFP. And this also kind of aligns with what uh, a system that Katrina developed, which is elemental psychology, aligning the four elements with the four Myers-Briggs types. So my primary type is feeling, introverted feeling. So my elemental type is introverted water. So a lot of this actually is rooted in both elements and psychology. And this is what you use in the show. This is what Kalila classes all of her cases as, right? Yes. Is using this framework. 
Exactly, because it really, um, the framework we use is not necessarily that you don't use any of the other modalities. You actually, the idea is you use all of them, but you have a preference. You've de- uh, uh, like over your life, you develop a preference for a certain tool, right? Um, and the whole thing is that, yes, you have a primary, but the strongest tool in your toolbox is actually the one you never want to pick up. So that's essentially what is called in, uh, in Jungian psychology as your shadow or your inferior function. So this idea of using psychology to actually create almost an engine of change in your own life to both understand what your true strengths are, as well as confronting what your weaknesses are, and doing it in a way that's compassionate and is understanding that it's, it is a process and it's a lifelong process. So for me, I, my, since my strength is introverted water or introverted feeling, that's primarily, I'm very, very good at finding what is most valuable, right? What is most, what is most important to me? So being able to distinguish details, you know, the, the, the tree for the forest, my hate (laughs) or my shadow is extroverted fire. And that is essentially the way that it was put to me is whenever I get into a dictator mode, that is actually me in a shadow, uh, acting out my shadow. Because that's actually something I I don't want to do, like leadership and all that. So um, through the process, um, so my first year, we went through a, a book study on personal mythology. Uh, it's actually, the book was called Personal Mythology. And it actually provided a lot of exercises to kind of pull out a lot of a lot of stories of who we are and, and what stories we tell about ourselves and about our lives. And for me, because um, in the first the first year, I'm uh, essentially focused on my primary element. I focus on water for my first year, and I essentially I do basically all my exercises and um, my projects are kind of centered around w- discovering what it is about what it what the things about my primary strength is. So being able to pull forward, you know, okay, so how do I bring my strengths to work? How do I bring strengths to my friendships? How do I bring strengths to my romantic relationships? How do I bring strengths to my family? Like the, where, where does the, where do these things show up? So for that first year, I was doing a lot of like, you know, thinking and journaling and doing exercises and trances and meditations and rituals all the while considering what am I actually good at? <laughs> and through the lens of understanding that the, the Myers-Briggs kind of gave me a little bit of a peek into what I, who I was and what I was good at. Eventually, um, uh, after about the, I think the f- second year, because each year there's about the, the standard Reflections Mystery School um, program that I was in was the Celestials program, which is four years. So you actually go through all four elements. Of course, you start off with your strongest and the last is your weakest. So my, my fourth year was fire year. Interestingly, that aligned with my initiation into the order of elemental mysteries, but I'll get to that in a second. So once I did my initial, um, uh, I, I did an initial project around my primary element, around water. The second year I had to figure out how it is that my two top, my, my primary and my secondary work together. So my primary is water, my secondary is air. And so air is, you know, things like 
communication and, and art and creativity. So I had to figure out how does my primary element, this like watery element, how does this work with creativity? So I actually had, wrote an essay about it. And during that time too, um, I was curious about getting initiated into the order of elemental mysteries, which um, seeded the school and oversees the school. So I had talked to Katrina about it and she was like, okay, let's 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 get you through this. Let's let's get you on to 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 going through certain challenges um, to get ready for initiation. So in conjunction with school, um, graduate school and wanting to become like a foreign service officer. And that's what was my trajectory. I was also figuring out who I was in this spiritual sense. Plus, I was also undergoing small C challenges with the this uh, mystery order. So as I was going along this initiation track, um, one of the things that we usually understand by the third year is what our vocation is. And I was struggling a lot with that. I had no idea what the name would be, like what, what, what kind of vocation I, I was actually looking for, because I was so interested in so many different things. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to work as a foreign service officer. I was, um, and I can say this now, I was briefly flirting with certain uh, covert agencies um, <laughs> about getting in. Uh... I remember you telling me about <laughs> this. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> uh, yes. So I can say it now. Um, uh, and there, so I, I was really trying to figure out who, what I wanted to do with my life. And I was, uh, of course, still in graduate school and I was about to finish up graduate school by my third year uh, in Reflections Mystery School, I was trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do with my life? And it really landed for me when um, I was talking about writing. Uh, I wrote a novel in, for NaNoWriMo um, in 2015. And I was trying to, I was trying to get it off the ground and I was talking to Katrina and she asked me, well, what, what's your vocation? I, I'm like, I like to write things. I like to tell stories. I like to act. I like to strategize and figure out how other people's stories are, what other people call their cultures and mythologies. And she was like, you're dancing around the name. What is the name? <laughs> and finally, I actually broke down crying before I could actually say it that I am a storyteller because that word just felt so loaded to me. Why did it feel so loaded for you? Because it meant that it encompassed, it actually identified all the things that I actually love to do as a human being. It actually, ref it completely reflected what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And, you know, there's there's so many other words that I could use to describe what a storyteller is or even words that I can describe for myself. I'm also a strategist. I'm also an actor. But a storyteller really reflected what I personally bring to all the work that I do. And it's also an ancient archetype. That was also another thing that makes it loaded that this is actually something that is, uh, a, a storyteller is a very human archetype. It's a human role that has been around for forever, like a healer, like a warrior. 
like, you know, uh, even just our general an artist. Like those those terms, those roles, those vocations have been around for a very, very long time. So for me, and again, because my primary strength is identifying what's important, I realized and recognized and emotionally felt how important it was for me to identify what what it is that I am and what my vocation, what I want to bring to no matter if even if I'm not writing, um, even if I'm just, you know, on the street talking to a friend. I still bring the storyteller um, as a storyteller. So this is a spoiler for season one. Yes. Uh, and I feel like it might be good to pick it up now while you've mentioned it already. The revelation at the end of the season is that the saboteur that has dogged Kalila this whole time was Kalila's own shadow. Yep. And David, do you want to talk about a little bit like how this felt to you? Yeah, it, it, it seemed so personal and real and grounded in like the lived experience of Lizette. What, what, but first, I guess I should ask, what can you tell me about Kalila's shadow? And are you comfortable? I mean, you are. You told me earlier, you told us about your own shadow. Yes. Was, was there a realization that you had about yourself and how you were treating yourself? Uh, I constantly <laughs> have those realizations. Uh, one of the wonderful things about doing this story, um, especially being very conscious that it is a hyper-realistic version of, of my experiences and in, in a variety of forms, um, I continuously, like constantly realize uh, the lessons that I put Kalila through, I constantly have to revisit, even wh like while I'm writing them while I'm acting them, while I'm producing them, even when other people bring up an episode, I'm constantly reminded of the lessons that I, I'm learning and continue to learn and have learned. And part of that, I think, is uh, the, the, the lessons that I, I have to learn from my own shadow, um, which is that uh, the things that we don't want to see as ourselves that I, I don't that the, the you know the things that I've project out into the world in some ways um, the entirety of Kalila Stormfire is my shadow and at the same time it is also my you know my brightest shining so when I engage with it when I when I introduced um, and tried to figure out what it is that those I actually don't quite remember I'll be honest I don't quite remember how I landed on that plot development because, you know, I wanted to talk about A Witch for Hire, and I think part of me, I think very early on realized that that was going to be the the crux, but I didn't couldn't figure out, like, you know, how I wanted to reveal it, why it was so important, um, until I got closer to actually sitting down and writing. Because I wrote it all in a month. I wrote it for NaNoWriMo in 2017. Oh, wow. So a lot of that is a blur. <laughs> <laughs> but um that's a lot yeah <laughs> yeah uh and it was also right on the the it the planning of it actually came right after I was initiated into the order of the elemental mysteries so that was also that that year's 2017 was a very loaded year for me in a lot of ways and I'm sure for a lot of people it was it was very intense so Essentially, it was my final project for my last year, for my fourth year, um, which was my shadow year. 
as well. So not on, on top of, you know, also being initiated, it was also my shadow year, my fourth year, my uh, fire year in uh, Reflections Mystery School. So that also kind of like, of course, I'm going to have to write about shadows in this story. I'm going to, this audio drama, I'm going to try to, you know, test out, see if I, see if I like it. <laughs> so it was, it was definitely driven by my own issues. And uh, I have absolutely had the experience of being what, what some people call being possessed by your own shadow, where you actually don't remember. Um, you're, you're in such a, like a fugue state, or you're at your weakest point, you actually don't remember saying certain things or doing certain things that when you look back and you're like, that wasn't me. Who was that? Like, I would never do that. You know, even things, you know, things that are not like massively horrible, like, you know, sabotaging somebody's business, but other things like saying something cruel or, or, or doing something that, that, you know, you never expected yourself to do. A lot of that, like, I realized that that's, that's something that I wanted to write about of what that's like and what it's like to actually sit down and talk with your shadow as well. And that it is kind of a, a act of self-love. To address the parts of yourself that you've neglected? Yeah, that you've neglected and you've also deemed monstrous. Because honestly, like that's that's the that's the biggest thing about shadows is that they're not just things that we don't want to address; they're things that we hate actively. Like it's it's very much, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll tease a little bit of season two because this is a theme in season two. Is you know the things that we hate about oppression and the world around us, if we haven't done the work on ourselves of actually figuring out ways in which we oppress others, that we contribute to neglecting and demonizing other people, marginalized people, we are just contributing to a greater shadow, a greater, you know, e in some ways we can call it evil or if it, a lashing out um, as well. So for me, it's it's been really important to to kind of point those things out in myself. And one of the ways I've done that is by putting it on display in my audio drama. <laughs> yeah, for real. Who needs therapy, really? Uh, <laughs> uh, out full disclosure, I am in therapy. I am happy to be in therapy. You're, Thank you very much. <laughs> I saw my therapist today. I saw my therapist last week. Yay! Good job, everybody. Yeah, I saw mine on Sunday. Hey. Good job, guys. Good taking care of yourselves. <laughs> I want to expand a little bit upon what we were just talking about, about the elemental psychology framework. Yes. Because, Lisette, in an interview with the Fantasy Inn, you said you wanted to reflect your experience with magic as a subtle and almost psychological tool. And you've already explained uh, Katrina Messenger's elemental psychology framework, right, which marries Jungian alignments with the four elements of Western, uh, Western magical tradition. Yes. Western, thank you. Western magical tradition. What can you tell me about the intersection of psychology and magic? Like many times I've heard you tell me that Jung was into the occult. So it doesn't really feel like much of a leap for me. Yes. So one of the things I actually like talked about this recently with, um, uh, with Katrina and with one of my other order member sisters, um, that I find it very funny. And even though I do this myself, and sometimes I find it funny when when a couple because a couple people, a couple of fans of the show have come up to me and say like, I love how you present magic, like the the magic framework in this world. It's almost psychological, or that it is psychological. And I'm like, there is a very thin line 
I, I, la I have to laugh because for me, the experience of magic is very, very real. Um, I, I, I've, I've, uh, a couple of people have, uh, who may have also, may also listen to this. I, I have actually like, you know, leaned in forward. I'm like, Hey, guess what? I got a secret. Magic is real. <laughs> like that, that kind of experience. Um, it's very hard to, to, to divorce from, you know, the, the assumptions that magic isn't real, that it's all in our heads. And I've spoken with other uh, witches in the uh, audio drama field uh, who also talk about this, uh, this feeling that, that, um, uh, you know, some, some of us do kind of question, like, maybe it is all in our head. It works. So whatever. <laughs> um, and of course, magic is defined. And I've, I, I talked about this in the spirits episode, Living Witchcraft, about how, the definition of magic and what is magic is very much determined by a Western point of view. Um, I'm very lucky in that um, my primary teacher is a Black woman <laughs> who has a very strong um, root in a ver variety of her spiritualities. And I also have my very eclectic background with my, uh, specifically my Cuban grandparents. Um, so magic to me has always been a very, very strange science. And I think it was, and I, uh, it, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm stumbling on trying to define it for you. Um, but one of the, one of the ways in which it's been defined to me is that it is one of the forces of life. Magic is a force of life. It is as intangible as what we consider life and the forces of life as gravity to be. Um, and its influences and how we influence it is very much uh, a matter of perspective. And in some ways training, like one of what I've done, like, you know, when I sit down and I do ritual or I go into a trance, I am training my brain to open myself up to mystery, to sit in the unknown. And I think for the for a large part that is a uh, practice of will and a practice of uh you know the mind of settling the mind and allowing allowing yourself to get out of your own way uh and a lot of ways that is also how i approach my storytelling is also trying to get out of my own way um and let it flow let that that the the stories flow let the the whatever the magic flow whatever it is um because i've been doing this for so long now for over 10 years now um actively it it's very hard for me to kind of separate it from things that i do every day as long as i start to like if i start to draw focus um to what's going on around me in the like the world of the now um experiencing life itself is magic and I try to, to do that when, when I'm, you know, doing tarot readings. I try to, again, get out of my own way and experience the magic of the moment and open myself up to the things I might not be able to see when I'm, you know, kind of running around with my, like a chicken with my head cut off. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that's a large part of it is, yeah, experiencing mystery is one of the core elements of what I've learned uh, through Reflections Mystery School and through the order um, and through writing and focusing on the craft of writing is that so much of it is a mystery. I was like, you know, how, you know, where do these ideas come from? 
that type of thing is is something I try to honor and I try to also respect that, you know, I don't know everything. Um, I don't know a lot of things. And being able to sit with that actually allows me to see a lot more. I have a question about something that you mentioned briefly, you know, people telling you that, oh, I love the way that you portray the magic in, in Kalila. What does it mean to produce something labeled as fantasy fiction for you as a as a pagan witch? For me, it actually is not that much further from how I read fantasy or how I read any story, to be honest. I think that all stories are actually magical in their own way. Um, I, I actually uh, subscribe to the, um, and I will plug this, the Audio Fiction 101 course um, uh, produced by the, the people who've done uh, Wolf 359. And I love that they actually open up with mentioning Stephen King's on writing and basically how he positions writing is just telepathy. Um, it is literally putting a fully formed image into someone else's mind. Hmm. And to me, writing a fantasy story that is rooted in in magic that I experience day to day is just being a little bit more explicit about the magic that's happening in all stories. <laughs> is listening to this podcast itself like part of a, the spell? Is that an ignorant thing to ask? Like, are we sanctifying your <laughs> spiritual practice by listening to it? So uh, I will be explicit in that. Absolutely. Yes, it is a spell. Um, Every episode, and, and I, the, the way I know this is that I've cast it on myself, essentially. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, the thing about writing an episode, like um, the one that everybody keeps talking about, which is episode three, music. And uh, that comes from a very personal experience of me grow, like, you know, turning 18. I had a Peter Pan moment. Um, and even though, it, you know, music wasn't directly involved, um, the, the idea is like, I wish that somebody could have told me it was okay to feel this way. Um, and this is, this is actually normal that this is becoming an adult is something that unfolds and it, it should, you should allow yourself to do that. In order for me to actually feel that, um, that type of power of my own words, I had to consciously think about it as when I sit down and write, I am doing, I'm doing a ritual, you know, sitting down and writing is something that it, that I try to bring as much of myself and as much of my power and much of my magic and honoring that, that creative act. Uh, it is sacred to me. I don't, I don't necessarily like, I force somebody, I'm going to force somebody to like take this particular lesson from this story. I'm just presenting the lesson that I've learned, but at the same time, trying to sit down and make sure that whatever I do put out there is something that I do care about. And that I hope is a story that will touch somebody else. And I've been explicit too, that yeah, this, a lot of the magic in here, I'm not going to ignore the fact that a lot of the magic in there for me is very real. So when I do share it with the world, um, I'm accepting the consequences, so to speak. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. When, when did you decide to bring other performers and editors onto the show? Like what, what influenced the decision to cast Zayn Tiam as Desiree Onassis, right? They're one of the first characters to exist in the story world beyond just Kalila's case reporting. 
Yes. So I had it built in in my Patreon when I set it up um, in the beat, but right before I uh, I did actually start the season, um, that if I hit a certain level, that I'd be able to afford to bring someone else on. And for me, um, it actually went through the process of a couple of, of, of sensitivity readers for the episode that Desiree was going to be in, the fifth episode of the first season, and uh, as well as actually the, the, the eighth episode where, where Desiree actually gets their voice, um, they, they, it was initially written as Kalila describing the case, right? So what happened was I was talking to the uh, a sen- one of the sensitivity writers who's also uh, black and non-binary. So DB Wenzel, when they sat down and you know talked to me and asked me for more details about Desiree, um, one of the really important things they brought up is that um, if you're going to cast this person, they can't just be a like an empty side character. They have to have real life to them. Um, and real lived experience. And in my head, I was already very much planning on anyone I would cast would be reflected as a character, as the character that they are representing. One of the things that I, you know, uh, that I knew right off the bat that Desiree would be uh, Kalila's love interest for the season. And yeah, and to be honest, I initially, when I initially started this, it was just going to be one season. <laughs> but the idea that as I started to get closer to um, the midway through the season and getting all the support that I've I, I've gotten, um, and getting also the financial support that 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 I had gotten up to that point, I seriously sat down and considered, okay, so what does this mean? I really Desiree's the first character. I really want to bring to life because the work that I've done, not only with um, the sensitivity readers, but also the type of story I want to tell about a queer relationship is one that I want to make sure is, is, is fully realized. So that was the first, like, I really wanted that to be the first step, especially in a story that is about self-love and love in general. I wanted to you know, make sure that that was, that was the first voice that comes to be is, is one that is compassionate. Um, and because I, I just love the idea of Desiree too, of, of this black non-binary, like curator at an art gallery who lives with a pack of werewolves like that, that I wanted to bring that to life. I wanted to bring <laughs> that person to life. And, and the idea that I could also put forward journal entries and I wrote actually the, I, that that was actually also a part of when I was writing was like, OK, like, what are the extras that I'm going to put out there outside of the actual story? And I'm like, what if Desiree had a blog or a vlog or a journal um, that actually gave them more of a voice, even if I hadn't brought them to life? So that was kind of, you know, that that realization that I now had money to pay for someone and I was willing to, you know, go out there and look for someone who'd be willing to, uh, you know, get in on the role. Um, it took me a little bit. Um, I actually, I, I, I was like searching around. I put out a lot of stuff on the internet until finally one of my sisters in the order said that, hey, I have a friend who's black and non-binary and they've done acting and performance stuff. I'll put you in touch with them. <laughs> so uh, that's how I met Zane. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and Zane actually now lives with said sister order member. Oh, nice. Aww. 
Yay. Yeah. And they're also a witch. I forgot about that part. <laughs> Zane is, you mean? <laughs> yes, Zane is also a witch. They're a pretty good one. So yeah, actually also presenting uh, the scripts to them. They were the first, uh, and now I give this uh, warning to all my actors, is that the character kind of sticks to them a little bit in various ways. Uh, yeah, uh, when I first presented the script to Zane, they were like, are you sure we don't know each other? Because <laughs> this is me. Hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that was really cool. I love that. Uh, I have another question about the way that you were writing this. If I understand correctly from other things that you've said, you didn't start Kalila Stormfire with a second season in mind. Correct. So what influenced your decision to expand Kalila's adventures into the wider world? So again, it was about halfway through the season. So about halfway through last year, um, I, I started asking myself that question, like, when when is the deadline? When do I have to, like, figure out when I'm actually going to, <laughs> if I'm going to expand or not? And, you know, like, I, I was asking myself, am I just expanding it just to, like, you know, keep attention on the story, like, to keep people engaged in this story? Because now I know that, like, it works. You know, is it actually serving the story? Like, is this actually a story that needs to be told further? And um, I brought this question, this conundrum, to Katrina, actually. And she said something that you know, she, she, she always knows the answer to these things. <laughs> um, uh, for these participants, she doesn't know the answer to a lot of things, but for certain things, she has very good answers for. And she told me that, why don't you ask Kalila if the story's over? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Essentially, what I did was I kind of sat down in a semi-meditative state to, to be as honest as I could with myself and conjured Kalila up in my head and asked her, is there more? Is there more to be told? And uh, one of the rules in, or not rules, it's one of the tricks in my coven, which is, uh, you know, in order to, to make sure that something's actually truthful or that you know something is right, you get kind of three internal yeses. Like there's no waffling. You just get, you, you ask yourself a question and you get a yes. You stop, wait, ask yourself another time and you get another yes. Then you wait, ask another time and you get that final yes. Then <laughs> you're on the right track. So that's what I did. Um, and I got an enthusiastic yes from Kalila that yes, her story has more to it. So I, I actually changed the last few episodes to reflect the kind of story that she told me needed to be told, essentially. Um, she unfortunately could not give all details. I had to pull that out by the root in a lot of ways through writer's block and a lot of other stuff, but I eventually got there. I kind of know what's going on. That's the that's the that's the curse of the storyteller is sometimes you just you're kind of being pulled around by your nose by your stories. Yeah, that seems familiar. <laughs> yeah. So shifting gears a little bit again, uh, you describe Kalila Stormfire as modern fantasy and you describe it as an urban fantasy. And now I know that the the urban fantasy genre carries a lot of connotations and expectations over from the world of 
like prose fiction. Yes. What do those expectations and connotations mean for you? I think for me, I I think it's a lot, it, like my description of the genre that Kelly the Stormfire is in is kind of I, I kind of shrug. <laughs> I know it's fantasy. It's also not fantasy in the terms that a lot of the stuff it talks about is based in real world magic users. Um, it's also urban. Urban fantasy is the the type of work that I am used to to both reading and writing. I think the connotations, uh, especially in 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 the literary sphere, it's actually kind of defining what it is not. When people, a lot of fantasy they work with is kind of along the lines of, uh, you know, epic fantasy or like medieval-esque fantasy. Um, describing modern fantasy is that it's set in like modern day. It's not set in the future. It's not set in the past. It's set essentially within, you know, the, you know, late 2010s, right? Or in, in, in some cases explicitly stating that it's in 2018 or 2019. One of the things that I put forward in terms of urban fantasy is that it is set in a city, that it's not set in a countryside, that it is important, that it is um, urban in terms, and, and a lot of the connotations that are what go with that in terms of race um, as well is that, and, and this is something that I've always kind of hated about the urban fantasy genres that is very white when it really shouldn't be. I noticed when I, I tried Anita Blake, Detective Anita mm-hmm. Blake, the vampire mm-hmm. mysteries. Wow, yes. Those those take place in St. Louis. And I went to school in St. Louis. <laughs> and that is not a a it is not a lily white city. Yeah. Yeah. It was just so like it was so completely drained of blackness. I was like what is this unrecognizable city? Right. How, how do I, how do I do snaps on this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, I mean, like when you define something as urban, that's also a code word and a whistle, uh, a dog whistle often in in politics of of being black or being uh, Latinus or um, or any other like you know majority minority areas of of at least the U.S. Uh, and of course, this is uh, obviously speaking explicitly to the U.S., but at the same time, even when I was living in Argentina, um, in the main city of Argentina, the people who are right in the city tended to be essentially minorities or lower, quote unquote, lower classes um, rather than the sequestered urban elites in their in their in their nice houses with big fences and walls. So yeah, a lot of my experience from from considering urban is is also again kind of the fact that I am positioning it in a city that is modeled after cities that I've lived in or that I have experience in and making it explicit that this is a working class urban non-majority minority community that Kalila works out of as well. That's awesome. Love that. <laughs> so Ellie and I were both talking about this, it took me a while to realize the extent to which magic was openly practiced and accepted in the world of Kalila, like to the point where it would be an ordinary thing for like EMTs, like hospital workers and doctors to recommend Kalila's practice. Right. To what extent did you build in that slow reveal 
One of the things that was important to me when I started building this story was that I wanted the feeling of how magic presented in this world, in, in, in Kalila's world, being as close as possible to my experience with magic in this world. Because to be honest, you know, people even now, in even in current, you know, clinics, you can get people recommended to acupuncture, to, you know, a variety of what some people would be called alternative methods of medicine um, for a variety of ailments. Uh, I didn't want to make the the presentation of Kalila as an alternative to real world medicine. Um, I try to make it explicit that, yeah, no, you first need to address the actual physical symptoms before you go and, and address any, any psychological or spiritual or mental or emotional symptoms. Um, but that in a lot of ways, a lot of magic workers are rooted in sciences, in, um, you know, basic first aid or understanding how the body works. In a, in, a, in a physical way. I wanted to create a world that, again, kind of reflected, that's kind of my reality. Like I know a lot of people who are both massage therapists, but also are emergency responders. You know, that's, that, that kind of balance can exist. And I wanted to actually present a world in which kind of provokes the question, hey, this isn't all that different from our world um, in terms when it, when it comes to, to to magic and and the positioning of healers in your communities, like you, the the whole idea of a village witch um, being something that people are still now like even if it's just online, people do respond to. People want to get to a wise person and see what they have to say about their troubles. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I, I, I and many of my fellow witches like to joke that even though many people make fun of or even demonize witches, where do you go to when you are being haunted? Or where you, when you feel like you have, uh, you know, a, a, an issue around love? So many people go to a witch. You know, that it's, it's something, there's something about that. That I think is is uh, can be is being reflected in Kalila's world, and it but also is important for me to 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 honor in my world. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lizette, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I I am very. This is a great way to uh, transition from work to home because you guys are my friends, and I feel very at home talking to you. So thank you. Thank you so much for, you know, also giving me a place to speak my truth in a variety of forms. Yeah, dude. Thank you so much. If you want to speak your truth, follow us on Twitter. We're at Radio Drama. There you can tell us about the things that move you. If you want to hear an extended cut of this interview, where Lizette tells stories of her life as a third culture kid, the Neapolitan Mafia, and the role that fiction plays in culture, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. You can also throw Lizette and their production a couple bucks as well by supporting them at patreon.com slash Stormfire. Visit our website to experience the majesty of our archive and look at photos of our sweet faces, Radio Drama Revival. Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by Salt, Sugar, and the following guided meditation. You are a raindrop 
jostling inside a cloud. You are a fragmented self among all the other raindrops, waiting to achieve your potential and loose yourself onto the world. All it takes is enough mass being ready, coalescing enough of yourself into a coherent mass, and then you're off at a speedy clip. Strike the earth! If you fail on your first strike to cultivate a seed, stretch out to the sun and let it carry you back up to the clouds. Regroup, coalesce, try again. And now, your moment of will. Happy rain day, listener. I am proud of you, you sweet little raindrop. Last week, I asked you which common fruit has the properties of good fortune and success. The answer is strawberries. I know, who would have thunk, right? Love that. Love it. Love me a little strawberry. And hey, listener, I really am proud of you. It's credits time. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Will Williams. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Elena Fernandez-Collins. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Perfect dining room table is out there waiting to be found on homedepot.com. No, you won't have to build it. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything from dining chairs to dinnerware. And with easy in-store returns, bring it back if you do decide to build one yourself. Save up to 25% on select dining room furniture, plus free and flexible delivery. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only, free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and lead gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.